Genesis chapter 17. I'm going to have a hard time this morning, I can tell. (laughs) The topic in Genesis 17 is this. God changes Abram's and Sarai's names by adding the fifth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's pronounced hey. He adds that to each of their names. And the title of our message this morning, the Say Hey Kids. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we appreciate so much about you. Uh, We thank you that you brought us to this place this morning to study your word. Uh, But Lord, it, it, it sounds so... Sounds so sterile in a sense, Lord, to study your word when really we've come to meet with you, the living God. Lord, every time we get together, there's a sense that you are really present among us in a manifesting way. I know that you're with us always and and I know that your spirit lives within us. But you told the churches in the book of the Revelation that when they met, you walked in the midst of them. And so there really is a special sense of your presence when Christians gather together in your name, for your glory, around your word. And so I pray that you would reveal yourself, Lord, to our hearts. Show us more of your grace than we've ever known before. More about your mercy. May we know that we've been forgiven and fall in love with you afresh and anew. So that others, Lord, would see what you're doing in our lives be hungry and thirsty for it themselves. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name and those who agreed set. Amen. It's not uncommon for celebrities to change their names. Uh, see if you can recognize a few of them by their real names. I'll start off with an easy one. Norma Jean Baker. Almost, that's right. Almost everyone in my generation knows that Norma Jean is the real name of actress Marilyn Monroe because of the Elton John song, Candle in the Wind. Elton John's real name, by the way, is Reginald Dwight, which uh, obviously he's going to change his name. Uh, Here's a few others. I don't want you to guess if you have them on your uh, notes, you know, those of you who get the notes or uh, some of you might notice people have their phones out or, you know, other electronic devices. We allow that here. Uh, because people are hopefully following along with the Bible study or a Bible, an electronic Bible. If you hear little noises like, and they're playing Angry Birds, then the ushers raise your hand and uh, we'll deal with that. But anyway, so those of you who don't know the answers to this, just think this through. Melvin Kaminsky. Anybody know who Melvin Kaminsky is without the aid of my notes? That's comedian Mel Brooks. Karen Johnson. You might know this one. Comedian Whoopi Goldberg. Getting more contemporary, which I try to do. Uh, Alicia Beth Moore is the singer Pink. And uh, here's one in the news all the time. Carlos Erwin Estevez. Charlie Sheen, yeah. I didn't know that. Anyway, some celebs, they've had multiple name changes. My favorite is rapper and actor Sean Combs. He's gone by Puff Daddy, Puffy, Puff, P. Diddy, Diddy, and King Combs. Back in May, he changed his name for one week. You probably didn't know this because you don't follow him on Twitter. Neither do I. But on his official <laughs> Twitter account, he explained, and I quote, For a week this week only, you can call me by my new name, Swag. Hey, he's a lot more successful than we are. So maybe there's something in this. Bible characters have had their share of name changes as well. Saul became Paul and 
Simon became Peter. Perhaps the most significant biblical name changes were those of Abram and Sarai to Abraham and Sarah. The change is significant not just because of the importance of Abraham and Sarah in biblical history, but also because of the particular addition God made to their names. In both cases, God did the same thing. And he inserted the fifth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. We pronounce it hey. The significance of their name change goes even further as we see God tell them to cut away, or we might say to incise, the flesh of the foreskin. Paying close attention to what God inserted and to what was incised, I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, God inserts himself into your heart. And number two, God incises self from your heart. First of all, let's talk about God inserting himself. I want to get right into this extra letter, the hey in their names. The first thing to note about it is that it is the second and the last letter of the name of God that we pronounce as Yahweh, but is represented by the English letters Y-H-W-H. The H's in that would be the Hebrew letter Hey. According to one source, and I quote, Hey is often used to represent the name of God, as Hey stands for Hashem, which means the name, and is a way of saying God without actually saying the name of God. In print, Hashem is usually written as the letter Hey with a Geresh on it, which is an apostrophe-like sign placed after the letter. God took a letter from his name and he inserted it into Abram's to make it Abraham. He took a letter from his own name and he inserted it into Sarai's to make it Sarah. He inserted his name into their names. Now, the letter is pronounced as a breath sound, Some Hebrew scholars say that the letter itself represents then the breath of God. In the Talmud, it is said that in Psalm 33, 6, where you read, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth, breath refers to the sound of the letter He. Thus creation was breathed forth by God's Spirit. We could accurately say then that when God inserted a letter from his name into the names of Abram and Sarai, he was representing to them that he was inserting himself into their hearts, giving them a sense of his presence and the powerful breath of his spirit. God was telling them, I will be in your life to accomplish by my spirit what I have promised you and what I am promising you. Now, that's nothing short of awesome. I mean, that's an amazing thing that God is doing. I mean, when you consider the the Almighty God, we're going to get the first reference to God as the Almighty uh, is here in this chapter. And he says to Abram, I'm inserting myself in your life. I'm putting my name in your name. We are going to be that closely identified. That's awesome. Especially coming at the time God was promising them he would do something impossible, humanly speaking. He would perform a miracle by allowing Abraham to father a child with Sarah. Now, while your mind is blown, think about this. We know, do we not, that every Christian is indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, by definition, God the Holy Spirit dwells within you. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. If you are a believer, God has even more so inserted himself into your heart than he did with Abraham, giving you a sense of his presence and the powerful breath of his spirit. And here's something more. 
you too have a new name. You don't know what it is yet, but in the revelation of Jesus Christ, we read this. This is from chapter 2, verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, though the Lord is addressing one particular church in this letter, when you read, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, that includes all Christians. We have spiritual ears to hear as Christians, and we're members of the church. To him who overcomes, the Lord says, I will give some hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on that stone a new name is written, which no one knows except him who receives it. And so you're going to have a name that you don't know yet, no one else knows it, but Jesus knows it. It's his endearing name for you. It's a personal name that Jesus has picked out for you. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to pay a lot more attention to Abraham and Sarah's name change than I ever did before because it has a personal relationship to me. And so in verse 1, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and he said to him, I am almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Abraham was almost 25 years walking with the Lord at this point, but he was still having amazing experiences with God. Maybe it's because I'm getting older, but I'd like to think that the best revelations are yet to come, that the Lord has more to show me uh, in the rest of my life than he's shown me already. Now, when God said, walk before me and be blameless, what did he mean? Well, he certainly didn't mean that Abraham, uh, Abraham rather was to be sinless because that's impossible. He might have meant Abraham should live in such a way as to be blameless if an accusation were to be brought against him. And that's usually the way we read this because we, we, we see that God is promising something and we, even though we teach and we say it's an unconditional promise, we want to really put a condition on it. We want to say, well, God is promising to do something for Abraham and of course Abraham has to do some things too. I mean, otherwise, you know, what's the deal? And so we always want to add conditions to God's unconditional promises. But I rather think in the light of, uh, of, of the book of Romans and in the context of who Abraham was, I rather think that what God meant was that having justified Abraham, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. God declared him righteous and saved him. Having done that, Abraham could walk before God knowing he was not guilty of his sins and that he would never be condemned, but that he had received eternal life. I guess what I'm saying is that when God says, walk before me and be blameless, he was reminding Abraham that before God, his position before God was that of a blameless individual. How is that possible? Because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Because he was a blameless individual. Because he was God, fully God and fully man, and he died in my place and your place and in Abraham's place. And when we believe that, then God can declare us righteous He can uh, hold us not guilty of our sins and we are free from any condemnation. And that's an amazing thing. And uh, rather than put a burden on folks, I want to announce that as a blessing. If you're not saved here today, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the absolute surrender of yourself to Jesus Christ because there is no righteous work that you can do by which you can be saved. But the Lord can declare you righteous and hold you not guilty because of Jesus. Now this covenant 
that God was stating, it started all the way back in chapter 12. If you were just teaching on what's called the Abrahamic covenant, God's covenant with Abraham, you'd go to chapter 12 and then chapter 13 and then chapter 15 and then finally here in chapter 17. And um, this is a further expansion of it, starting in verse 3. Then Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you. You shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, I will be their God. The most notable features of God's covenant with Abraham are these three. Number one, Abraham would be the father of a great nation. Number two, that nation descending from him is promised permanent, literal, physical, everlasting possession of the land of Canaan. And number three, all other nations of the world will be blessed by that nation. Now, the nation that descended from Abraham, that would be Israel. The land is the land of Canaan in the Middle East. The blessing of all the nations by Israel refers to, first of all, the coming of Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world, but ultimately to the second coming of Jesus Christ to establish a kingdom of heaven on the earth that will restore and renew the earth for a thousand years and bless all the nations and peoples of the earth. History and prophecy show the unfolding of the fulfillment of God's covenant with Abraham to preserve, to convert, and to restore Israel before the second coming of Jesus Christ. Um, there's a sense in which you cannot understand human history if you don't put Israel at the very center of history. Because as we read the Bible, it's really all, all these other nations, Egypt, Assyria, uh, Greece, Medo-Persia, Rome, all of them are seen in relation to the nation of Israel. You can study them separately. You can come to conclusions. You can write books. You can know a lot of things. But unless you factor in Israel, not just factor it in, but realize that, God, that history is the unfolding of this plan of God to bring the Messiah into the world and then to bring him back to establish a kingdom, you're just going to be lost in what happens. I remember maybe 10 years ago, 12 years ago, I was trying to research the uh, demonic influences, uh, the satanic influences in the Third Reich, the uh, Hitler, uh, you know, Nazi thing. And everybody, oh yeah, that, that's all bogus, you know. Christians like to... Well, now with the advent of the Internet and lots more information and knowledge, every program on, on you know, the History Channel is about the supernatural influences that uh, were there with the Third Reich and all. And so, well, I guess what I'm saying is you can't really understand World War II or Hitler or Germany or any unless you factor in the Jewish people. It wasn't just a sidelight that Hitler decided to destroy the Jews to kill six million Jews. He wasn't trying to just take attention off of himself. It's all wrapped in together. This is all God's story unfolding. And you and I know that history uh, from the Bible. 
God's covenant with Abraham, it's unconditional. Nothing he or his descendants do or don't do can alter it. God's covenant with Abraham is also literal. It is about the real physical descendants of Abraham and the real physical possession of the land of Canaan. It is not a spiritual allegory about you and I possessing the blessings of heaven. God is not through with the nation of Israel. He has a plan to restore them fully and to have Jesus return and set up His kingdom ruled from Jerusalem. Now drop down to verse 15. We want to stay with this name change theme for now. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be from her. And so God was going to insert himself, as it were, into Sarah's life too. And by his spirit, do a miracle by allowing her to conceive a child with Abraham when it was humanly impossible. I wonder how much confusion there was in their house for a while as they had to learn these new names. You know, all of a sudden, I mean, he had a big household. Remember a few chapters ago, he had 318 trained servants that were ready to go to war. Those were just the male servants. And so, I mean, he had probably a thousand people that we're talking about here. And you come out of the day and say, hey, my name is now Abraham and this is Sarah. I have enough trouble with just my grandson's nicknames. I mean, he's had uh, like a million nicknames already. He's little Gene, he's Gino, he's Tychus, he's LG, he's the tiny guy. Uh, you know, for a while we were calling him Tedward for some reason. I don't have any idea what that was about or where that came from. The other day I was so confused I called him Momo, which is the name of our dog. Uh, and then you add CJ to the mix. You know, her name is Cecilia Jean, but she goes by CJ. But I call her Ouija sometimes or, uh, you know, and stuff. It's and she looks like her mom did at that age. And so sometimes I call her Mary and then I'm upset because she doesn't answer me. But I'm just crazy. And so, you know, it's, it's confusing to an old man. And so, you know, I mean, how long does this take for a thousand people to read what? And by the way, there's a whole... I'd like to do a study sometime just on how weird it must have been to be a servant of Abraham's and all the strange, crazy things that you'd have to put up with, including something that's going to come up in a minute. But anyway, uh, back to our text, uh, verse 17. Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? So many things encourage me in this verse. It's not one of the great verses of the Bible. I mean, it wouldn't be anybody's life verse. It might be mine, but uh, it, I, the, not the least of which is that Abraham laughed before God. God said, uh, picture this. Here's how we picture this scene. We picture God in whatever form he took to Abraham saying, Abraham, you will father a son. His descendants will be... You know, we get this whole big thing. And then Abraham, he just starts laughing. God says, I'm going to give you a son. And Abraham and Sarah's going to have a son. He goes, ha! Ha! <laughs> Cracks up. How disrespectful is that? Well, it wasn't. He was just... I, I, think, I think we can have fun as Christians. I hope so. I have to confess, and some of you know this is true, uh... You'll be, t you'll be talking to me about something that's relatively serious, but it just sometimes it strikes me as funny. And uh, 
I'll start laughing and then you're, you're the only, you know, you're not laughing and I'm, and then I have to apologize and repent and you have to forgive me because you have to. Uh, I just, I bring out that passage. One of my favorite passages is that passage where Jesus told Peter he had to forgive somebody 70 times 7 in a day. So, but uh, if you've been around me at, 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 for any length of time, you know that I'll just laugh in your face occasionally. I don't, it's not, you know, it's just who I am. It's just, you know, as you laugh at me on Sunday mornings, then I get back at you maybe. I don't know. Which, but, you know, laughter. And, and laughter is just, I think sometimes, you know, Christians, we, we, we're supposed to have the living water, but we bring forth, you know, lemon juice. You know, all the time. People are like, oh man, that is that what it means to be a Christian? I'm sure I can't have any fun at all. And so we need to, we can cut loose a little bit. We can have some fun. Nothing disrespectful. We don't want to, you know, get into foolish jesting or, you know, uh, practical jokes that hurt people. That's not what I'm talking about. But we can have a great time. In fact, we should have a better time than people in the world. One of my Favorite experiences before I went into the ministry. I was a Christian. I was told you these stories before, but um, uh, some of you are new and you'll find them exciting. Anyway, uh, I was a salesman working for a title company, and every year, of course, that meant you had to, you had to endure the work Christmas party. And uh, there was another fellow there, Dan Conley, good Christian man, and he and I were like the only Christians at this place, you know. And uh, so we'd go to the Christmas party, and everybody would get sloshed. And we would stay sober, and we would have more fun than anybody. And one year, I'll never forget this, it was so fun. Uh, this one gal, uh, she came up to us, and she goes, All right, she goes, I'm going to ask you this. You guys aren't drunk, but you're having fun. How's that possible? You know, and before she collapsed, we were able to share. No, she didn't. But, but you know, we had a great time. We had a lot of fun. And it really bothered her that she needed alcohol to, to have that much fun. And it wasn't fun the next morning. You know, and, and, and so, you know, we can have a good time. We can have fun. You don't have to be carnal. You don't have to be worldly. But Abraham laughed at God. And, and God didn't strike him dead. He didn't tell him, get serious. Uh, you know, I can't, have, I can't have my guy laughing at me. I mean, you know, get with it. He, he received him. Then there's the fact that he was doubting God. I can definitely identify with that. I mean, God told him what he was going to do. And he said, no, you're not. That's pretty in your face. And then finally, Abraham was just getting started and he was 99 years old. God wasn't through with him, not by a long shot. And verse 18, Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, No, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. And you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant with his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him, and I will make him fruitful, and I will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this set time next year. When he finished talking with him, or then he finished talking with him, excuse me, and God went up from Abraham. Now Abraham just couldn't see Sarah getting pregnant. Neither could she... You remember earlier she suggested that uh, Abraham have a son with Hagar instead of her. She must have been past the change of life. God was going to do something powerful, miraculous by his spirit. The child would be Abraham and Sarah's child. But he would represent for all time a dependence upon the breath of God, as it were, upon the spirit of God to accomplish his purposes. God has inserted himself into your life given you His Spirit in order for you to accomplish His purposes. 
He's not interested in your plans and solutions. He doesn't mind your doubts as long as you submit to him and don't let your doubts take the place of what he wants to do. I guess what I'm saying is that since God lives in you and me, it ought to make a profound difference in the way we approach everything about life and living. There should absolutely be something supernatural about us. One of the pastors I follow on Twitter posted this quote today. He said, when we rely on organization, we get what organization can do. When we rely upon education, we get what education can do. When we rely upon eloquence, we get what eloquence can do. However, when we rely on the Holy Spirit, we get what only God can do. Since God himself has inserted himself into our hearts, he's inserted himself into all of our relationships, all of our circumstances, everywhere we are, he wants to reveal through us something beyond what we could hope to accomplish on our own. Book of Acts the transformation that takes place in the, uh, the disciples there after the day of Pentecost and people are marveling at what's going on. They're not really doing anything but just talking about Jesus. That's the kind of thing that God wants to happen in each of our lives. Uh, and, and if you read you know, the story of the early church and the, the people who were watching it, they, they couldn't understand what was happening. There was no organization. There were no resources until people started selling everything and giving everything to one another. Uh, There was no plan other than Jesus' plan to go to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the other most parts of the earth. But the, the early disciples didn't even want to follow that. They just hung out in Jerusalem until persecution broke out. And so they were just a group of people who said they knew Jesus and had been with Jesus and remarkable, amazing things were happening. Peter, walking down the street, he passed by this, uh, this lame man many, many times before, even with Jesus. And when the man was begging, he says, you know, I don't, I don't have anything, but I do have the name of Jesus Christ. Why don't you get up and walk? And he did. And he did. I think Peter was just as surprised as anybody else. And, and so, you know, I, all I'm saying is that we want to have a sense that whether it's my organization or my education, my eloquence, whatever it is that I think might characterize me or you, that's not what God is looking for. He's just looking for the availability to be, uh, for you to be used by God and to minister to others. Now let's get into the rest of these verses where God incises self from your heart. There was something God asked Abraham to do. It was to be a sign that Abraham and his descendants consented to God's covenant and it was the rite of circumcision. Verse 9, God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations, he who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant, he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uh, the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Covenant. Now, this is one of these weird things that happens when you hang out with Abraham. Whoever is in charge of your group comes and says, I have good news and bad news. The good news is we're going to have about three days off starting today. 
What's the bad news? There's a surgery involved. Uh, and so, yeah, it's just kind of weird hanging out with Abraham, but uh, he did it. Now, there's two schools of thought, obviously, regarding physical circumcision. Some look at it and think that the ritual alone is enough to save you. Jews who believe they are saved by birth and then who undergo these rituals, uh, but have had no heart change. Others say and recognize that circumcision is simply an outward demonstration of the need for inward spiritual renewal by God. And that's what the Bible actually teaches. Abraham was saved before circumcision became the sign of God's covenant. So it could not and it cannot be necessary for salvation, right? So if Abraham can be saved way before circumcision, then it's not necessary for salvation. And besides, later in the Old Testament, God himself speaks of the circumcision of the heart. He's talking about a spiritual circumcision in Deuteronomy 30 and in Jeremiah 4, an outward ritual to represent a spiritual truth. The truth it represented was that every human being needs a spiritual cutting away of the heart to leave uh, a heart that is in love with the Lord. Now, every Christian has received spiritual circumcision. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 11, we read, In Jesus, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. The moment a believer is saved, this spiritual surgery takes place. The body of the sins of the flesh is circumcised, it's cut away, it's put off. This is a reference, I think, to the sin nature we are born with, elsewhere called the old man. It's been cut away, it's been circumcised by Jesus Christ. The question is then, why do I still struggle and give in to sin? The answer is that I remain in my current physical body, and within the physical body that I have, there is left a, uh, an influence, a propensity to sin that we sometimes call the flesh. And so God has cut away the old man. He's eradicated the old man. He's given me his new nature. <clears throat> but for the time being, I have it in this current physical body, which is still prone to desiring to fulfill its own lusts. Nevertheless, the truth is you have been spiritually circumcised You are to reckon it to be true and to act upon it. Now back to Abraham and Ishmael and Isaac and what this means in context. What was God representing to Abraham by asking him to perform the rite of circumcision? Ishmael was conceived before the cutting away of Abraham's foreskin through circumcision. Isaac would be conceived after the foreskin had been removed. Ishmael then represents our best human effort to please and serve God apart from His Spirit. Isaac represents God's work through us when we depend upon His Spirit. With everything else going on with Abraham, he was also going to be an example for all time of this very simple but very profound spiritual principle. And that is that the works of the flesh cannot please God He wants us to bring forth the fruit of the Spirit. Abraham is a believer. He's got the promise of God. It it hasn't completely unfolded yet, but he knows that he's supposed to have a son. And as a believer, he suggests several uh, plans that fall short. He first wants Eleazar to be his heir. God says, no, it's not going to be Eleazar. It's going to be a child from your own body. 
Then Sarah comes along. She says, well, maybe you can have a child through Hagar and that will be the heir. And God says, no, it's not going to be Ishmael. It's going to be a child that comes from both of you. And even here, Abraham is still trying to suggest his own solution. And, and the, you know, the idea here is that Abraham has this promise from God and then he thinks, now how can I accomplish what God wants to accomplish in my life? What do I have at my disposal? I don't have any children, but I have Eleazar. I don't have any children, but I have Hagar. Now I have a child and I know God said no, but maybe it can still be him. And he forever represents the believer trying to do the works of God in the energy of the flesh. And if we're honest with ourselves, we do this a lot. Or at least we need to be open to the fact that it's a propensity that we have and we need to go to the Lord. And God says, no, here's what's really going to happen. I've made you certain supernatural promises and what I really want to do in your life You can't do at all. You can't be educated to do it. You can't learn how to do it. There's no training available for it. I have to do it by my spirit. All I'm asking you is that you get up every day and that you follow me and you will find and discover those good works. And try and keep your hands off of it. Uh, don't, certainly don't think that I, uh, anything that's being accomplished is being accomplished through you. Because then... God won't get the glory for it. And so it's a pretty clear demarcation. We see it easily in the life of Abraham. It really is harder to see in my own life. I mean, I like to think that I'm being spirit-led all the time. But a lot of times, if I'm honest, if I look back on certain things, I can see where what was really influencing me was something a little bit more worldly, a little bit more carnal. I really wanted to serve God, but what I built was with my own hands. It was wood, hay, and stubble material rather than gold and silver and precious metals and so God says there's a work I can do that is so glorious it's so wonderful it's actually supernatural and it's marvelous and you just need to wait for it and know that I can do it and stay out of the way and so we want to bring forth the fruit of the spirit and so Abraham verse 23 he took Ishmael his son and all who were born in his house all who were bought with his money every male among the men of Abraham's house and circumcised the flesh of their foreskins That very same day, as God had said to him, Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very same day, Abraham was circumcised and his son Ishmael and all the men of his house born in the house or bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. He did it, circumcised all the men. In our case, Jesus has done it. He has incised self the old nature from our heart and inserted himself there in the person of the Holy Spirit. Is that making a difference? Well, Francis Chan said, given our talent set, our experience and education, many of us are fairly capable of living rather successfully according to the world standards without any strength from the Holy Spirit. And so it begs the question, what about me? Am I living rather successfully even spiritually speaking, or what would be seen as spiritual without the Spirit of God. Who or what am I really depending upon? Would someone look at my life and lifestyle and be forced to say, hey, what's going on? How are you able to do that, to live that way? In a very real way, our lives can cause others to say, hey, as they begin to understand there is something new, something more, something has been inserted in our lives And that something is a someone, it's the Spirit of God, it's God the Holy Spirit 
because of uh, our love and affection for Jesus Christ. Amen?